This is the Human Action Podcast with your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. I am one of your standard co-hosts, Bob Murphy. Jeff is not with us this week, but we do have a special guest, Ross McKittrick. Uh, Ross, how are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks, Bob. How are you? Great. So Ross is a, an old colleague of mine that I know from uh, Canadian circles. So let me just uh, share with you folks a little bit about his official background, and then I'll talk about what we're going to get into today. So Ross McKittrick is a professor of economics and the CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce at the University of Guelph, where he specializes in environment, energy, and climate policy. And he's also a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. But today, what caught my eye is Ross had written an article on inflation, and it was something that um, coincided with my own interests and something I had been worried about. So specifically, just to set the stage for you folks at home, now that consumer prices are exploding here in the United States, the highest you know since the early 1980s, and they're also um, doing so in Canada as well. And it's standard for those of us of a free market persuasion who are s- skeptical of central bank policy to say, well, gee, they cr- printed a bunch of money, both physically and electronically, following the 2020 coronavirus panic. So what do you think is going to happen? This is standard econ 101, folks. But my concern with just being too glib on that was, well, yeah, but some of us, including me, were saying similar things back in late 2008, 2009, when the Federal Reserve also unleashed a torrent of monetary inflation following the financial crisis in the fall of 2008. And as we know, at least official measures of the consumer price index didn't explode. And it's true, we can come up and say, oh, well, they suppressed the numbers. And and yeah, that's all true. But gasoline in the United States was not $5 a gallon in 2010. And yet it is now, and much higher in some places, And so the question is, why was it that the Fed's actions or the Bank of Canada's actions in the wake of the financial crisis in 2008, which again, at the time was unprecedented, what they did, just loading the system up with money, how come that didn't lead to huge spikes in CPI, the highest we'd seen in decades at that point, and it allowed Keynesians like Paul Krugman and Brad DeLong to run victory laps and say, see, these guys are idiots. They don't know anything about how money works and and prices, at least in a modern economy. So uh, what caught my eye, like I said, is that Ross uh, recently in the Financial Post back on May 22nd has an article titled Inflation, Why Now and Not Post-2008? So Ross, do you want to take the helm for a minute and just uh, explain what what your analysis was? Like why why was there a discrepancy between what happened then and what happened now? Sure. Um, So my reaction to 2008 was similar to yours, uh, just watching the numbers on the U.S. monetary base, um, it had uh, just drifted upward really for decades and was at about uh, $800 billion just prior to the financial crisis. And then the financial crisis took the form of a lot of assets in the financial system suddenly losing their value, just collapsing altogether because of the structure of the mortgage-backed securities. And um, so... Ben Bernanke, the head of the Federal Reserve, his response was really revolutionary. He just essentially opened a window and said to the bank, sell me whatever you like and I'll give you a par value for it. And uh, to pay for that, he uh, rapidly increased the money supply. It it hit $2 trillion uh, by 2010. And uh, so that was more than doubling the size of the money supply in a very short period of time. And... uh, 
So yeah, those of us watching it, thinking of, of just the standard macro theories, assumed all oh, that's that money is going to create inflation. Um, to understand why it didn't, um, you have to look at some other accounts. First of all, the velocity of circulation had been going down previously and it just kept going down. So that was dampening some of it. But also the big thing was the banks didn't lend the money up. They put it into an account called the excess reserves account at the Fed. And the excess reserves account looks a lot like the monetary base account in the sense that at the same point in time, it just jumps through the roof. Pretty much all the money that they got from the Fed, instead of lending it out, they just held it at the Fed. They were getting paid a small nominal interest rate on those excess reserves. But they had the option of taking it and lending it out, but they chose not to. And that held true <clears throat> really for the um, uh, the next 10 years. Um, the money in the excess reserves account, um, uh, it's so it, normally banks don't hold anything in the excess reserves account, but um, by uh, 2010, they were holding um, 1.2 trillion. So most of the money they got, that's where it went. Now, why were they holding on to it? That then takes us over to the real side of the economy. And the story there was just that the banks were looking at um, the lending opportunities and evidently decided they would rather get a small interest rate from the Fed then put that money out into the real economy. People weren't borrowing, banks weren't lending. And um, so the money didn't cause inflation, basically because it never actually got out into the real economy. Now, um, over time, so the, the excess reserves account, um, it continued to grow uh, up until the middle part of that decade. By uh, 2015, it was um, over two and a half trillion. And what was going on there was that the the bank was still engaging in quantitative, the central bank was still engaging in quantitative easing. They were still purchasing assets. Every so often they would try to reverse uh, gear. They would try to start selling assets and and, and draw down their, their balance sheet. And every time they tried, it had really strong negative impacts on the stock market and they would back off fairly quickly. So by the time you get to 2016, you've got two and a half trillion in excess reserves. And I'm just looking at the number here, you have four trillion in the monetary base altogether. So um, four trillion in the monetary base, that's an increase of three trillion from before the financial crisis. And of that, more than two and a half trillion never even went out into the economy. It's just being held in excess reserves at the central bank. Starting in 2016, the numbers begin to change a bit. And there, I think the story is that the real economy began picking up in a much more aggressive way. The, um, the Trump administration's tax cuts, their deregulation, they were, they were actually generating real economic activity. Once real economic activity is expanding in a big way, then the banking system begins to draw down the excess reserves. They're starting to actually lend them out the door. And also the Federal Reserve was able to start selling some of its assets and, and uh, drawing down its balance sheet. So up until 2020, there was a slow but steady reversal of operations that had really begun back in the financial crisis. But then in 2020, um, the uh, with the COVID 
crisis hitting. This is where, um, if you thought the numbers looked crazy in 2008, this is where they go really crazy. The, the central bank, uh, the monetary base, so by 2020, it was down to, I'm just looking at the numbers here, down just above $3 trillion. March of 2020, it gets pushed up to $5 trillion. So um, just under $2 trillion in money creation overnight in the winter of 2020. And again, most of that in the first instance went straight into the excess reserves account. So now here we are in the post 2020 period, um, a huge upward shock in the size of the money supply, uh, dwarfing the response to the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, Velocity is not decreasing, so that's not going to take off the pressures. And um, although excess reserves jumped, it was sort of an A-frame kind of jump, and they began dropping really rapidly in 2020. And then the final piece of the, of the picture here is the new administration taking a very different stance on energy policy, regulatory policy, um, handling of the, um, the supply chain crisis, all these real shocks that are all in the uh, direction of, of stifling real economic activity. Um, the stimulus program that precipitated an exodus from the labor market, for instance. So um, you have the great resignation, as it was called, now constrained labor markets, and all those things that um, essentially shift the supply curve back at a time when you've got a lot of money now shifting the demand curve out. So it's a totally different story now. And in the column that you read, when I, I got to the end, I, I made a passing reference to this modern monetary theory, which became popular, where I, I think some economists looked at the 2008 episode and with a sample size of one decided, okay, now we can rewrite all of monetary theory. And they took the wrong lesson from that. And we're now in a situation where um, classical monetary theory, I think is the guide for what's going on. It's a huge expansion of the money supply. It's not neutralized by a reduction in velocity. It's paired with a lot of constraints on real output and you have the classic Milton Friedman situation of too many dollars now chasing too few goods and services. And we can, uh, if you want to know what's, what's going on, really we're, we're back into a seventies style inflation. Next thing to watch for will be as it begins to affect wage settlements. Um, you know, my, generation when i grew up we we there's always strikes industrial strikes public sector strikes post offices on strike everybody's on strike and uh the millennials and the gen z people they've never seen that they've never really seen an era of widespread strikes and i think it's going to come as a surprise to people when the strikes start happening and um my it's my sense that this is what's going to happen because the workers can see that they've just taken a real wage cut. They have lost a lot of purchasing power. They're going to want their employers to make up for it. Their employers are going to be looking at the profit margins and saying, well, we took a pay cut as well. So they don't have the money. And that leads to the collision of expectations. And then you've got uh, strikes and lockouts happening. Um, Anyway, that's my sense of where we are at and uh, what's coming up. Okay, well, thanks for that uh, summary, Ross. So let me just, you, you have a lot there. Let me just unpack some of this. 
So I think one point I should make sooner rather than later before I forget is that the economists in the tradition of the Austrian school of economics, they often stress the distinction between monetary inflation and price inflation, right? So historically, at least in the United States, the word inflation referred to an expansion of the money and or credit supply. And then it was only later during the 20th century that that term came to be associated with rising consumer prices. And so, you know, some of us are cynical and we think that was on purpose that you're like subbing out the cause for the, you know, the effect or the symptoms and it makes it harder. You know, Mises has some passages saying it's hard to understand, you know, who to blame for rising prices when you can't even, when the very word you used to use to identify the cause, you know, is, is taken out of the vocabulary that now an inflation refers to the symptoms. Whereas again, in the late 1800s, it, it typically, the U S referred to expanding the money supply. So there's, there's that element, but also, um, I think because you were talking about stock prices, and so it's interesting that and I, and I I think I probably fell into this trap too of of saying, oh, after you know the rounds of QE of quantitative easing in the United States, prices didn't really respond much. But what we mean is like gasoline or tuna fish, mm. stock prices certainly responded. The price of mortgage-backed securities certainly responded. The price of treasuries responded, mm. and so it's um, so I I don't know if you consider that element of it but i was wondering is part of it might just be like in other words it's not surprising that when the fed comes in and gives a bunch of money to investment bankers that they go out and buy assets with it and that pushes up asset prices and everybody agrees like even the defenders of bernanke said the point of this was to support the stock market or or that's one of the good results and they're not going to go out and buy eggs and bread yeah well um in that sense, when um, when the Fed takes action, it, it's it, technically they don't just give money to right, the banks. Right. What they do is they buy assets from the banks. And traditionally, prior to 2008, the Fed really only ever bought either government treasury bills, government bonds, gold, very simple assets like that. On the thinking that the, the the Fed has to know that it could turn around and sell those assets at par value anytime it wants. That's how it controls the supply of, of money, basically buying assets when they want to put cash into people's hands and selling assets when they want to pull cash out of the real economy. Um, in 2008, another one of Bernanke's revolutions was they went to the banks and said, we'll buy anything. They, they created these holding companies called Maiden Lane and, uh, started buying equities, which they hadn't done before. And um, so as a result, that did go straight into the stock market and inflate asset values at a time when they were at risk of, of a, a widespread crash. As far as I know, and I haven't looked at the um, details of the Fed's holding, they're still holding equities and they're still willing to buy um, those kinds of financial assets that they didn't used to hold. It was very controversial at the time. I don't know if you remember um, when people like Ron Paul um, and let's see what was it was, Alan Grayson, I think was the other guy. They sponsored a bill to audit the Fed because they wanted to have an external auditor go in and, and look at the balance sheet of what the Fed was holding and find out what the stuff is actually worth because um, the Fed buys it. They record it on their balance sheet at par value. But when you're talking about multiple trillions of dollars, that doesn't mean they have that much in assets that they could sell if they had to to shrink the, the money supply. And um, so to your point, 
the Fed's actions really did directly feed into the stock market via the banking system. And at the time I was thinking, okay, if they're willing to buy anything, like I have a sofa in my basement, I could sell it to mm-hmm. them for $10,000. So why don't we do that? And the, the, the transaction balances, I get 10,000, they get a, an old blue sofa that they can put on their balance sheet. And, uh, um, why not buy assets from everybody, from every small business? You know, everybody's got stuff they would happily sell to the Fed and then store it for them. Um, just call it excess reserves. And uh, so if they had done that, then you would have seen that direct price inflation, prices of goods right, and services right. going up. Instead, it, it goes indirectly, first of all, through the assets of the, uh, the financial sector. So that's interesting you, you say that because... Um John, I don't know if you know who John Stewart is, the, the comedian who used to host The Daily Show. Yeah. And so he he now has a podcast where he's more serious. I mean, he still like tries to be funny, but you know, it's it's more serious topic. And he had Thomas Honing on. Um, I think he might have been the Kansas City Fed chief for a while. Um, mm-hmm. and he asked him precisely what you were saying. He was like, you know, especially in the wake of the financial crisis, if the ostensible justification for the Fed going out and buying mortgage-backed securities was to prop up the, you know, the real estate market and to, to maintain the flow of lending into the, the mortgage sector, which is what the, you know, they would, in other words, they weren't going to say, oh yeah, there's all these rich guys who are going to go broke. So we got to bail them out. That's not the official justification. Why are we buying mortgage backed securities? And right. so John Stewart asked a pretty reasonable question. Well, if the point of, if that was the, if the, the reason for that was to like prop up the failing real estate market, why didn't the fed just go around and buy up houses that were underwater directly mm-hmm. from homeowners? And, you know, and Honing kind of gave, and, you know, there'd be moral hazard and, you know, and it wasn't that there's anything wrong in his explanation as to why that would have been a bad policy. I agree with him. That would have been crazy if the Fed just went around and bought houses off people, but it raised the question, but then how come they were okay buying mortgage-backed securities? Like all of a sudden it's like, well, the whole system's at stake. So we got to bail out, you know, these investment banks. And so it it was funny. Um, Another... Sorry, if they had done that, it really would have closed the circle of government intervention in your household, in your your mortgage financing system. Because um, in the lead up to the financial crisis, one of the drivers of the creation of this shadow banking system with all these mortgage-backed securities was the federal rules that required banks to do a lot of lending activity in specified areas where they have to overlook bad credit scores and just meet social targets for for lendings and that was only viable for the banks because the banks figured out they could originate the loans meet the quotas and then flip the loans into these mortgage-backed securities which ultimately were backed by fannie mae and freddie mac so then other buyers are willing to put their money into them so you have this federal intervention at every stage along the way and the result was this massive buildup of risky mortgage assets um, so then if at the end of that, the fed rushes in and bails everybody out, it kind of would have, like I say, just close the circle of this disastrous process of intervention all along the way. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's, I mean, and a lot of people pointed this out, especially after the fact, but some of us, you know, um, Mark Thornton and Ron Paul being good examples Mark Thornton is a, uh, senior fellow here at the Mises Institute. Um, we're pointing at, you know, during the real estate housing boom in the mid 2000s that, hey, these government policies are, are encouraging too many people to get into 
into real estate and it's, you know, the banks are lowering their lending standards because of these policies and it's sort of mm-hmm. a, if like for us to understand after the fact, because some of these things were crazy, like, you know, there's there's famous anecdotes about banks that they, they call them liar loans. I don't know how, how prevalent yeah. this was in Canada, where the you, somebody would apply for a mortgage on a piece of property, would make up their income. They wouldn't even be employed. The lender knew full well they were lying, but they didn't care because, like you say, they would. It was a rising market. Worst case scenario, if they're still holding the mortgage, they just sell the property, which probably has gone up ten percent in the last year. Or ultimately, they would sell the mortgage, you know, to these Wall Street firms. But but all along the way, you know, you wonder why wasn't somebody like at some point somebody's gonna be left holding the bag and then the answer to that was yeah but if you knew the central bank following the experience of alan greenspan his famous greenspan put if you thought the central bank was waiting in the wings and they wouldn't let the system implode Mm -hmm. then you could say well let's ride this tide while it's going up and we'll you know private profits and then public socialized losses once you know we get bailed out yeah we didn't have the same degree of 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 crisis here in canada and i think a Part of that was we didn't have the development of these credit default swaps, uh, which were a big factor in um, the expansion of low-quality mortgage-backed security combined assets. So the credit default swaps were basically insurance policies on various tranches of these investment products. And they were structured so that the buyers of these products were actually hoping that they would fail because they were overinsured through credit default swaps. Um, Credit default swaps was another one of these parts of the shadow banking system. Basically, companies selling insurance on assets, but because it wasn't called insurance, they weren't they weren't subject to the regular rules. Like you can't, if you have a, a house worth two hundred thousand, you can't take out ten million dollars in insurance on it because then obviously you've got an incentive to burn mm-hmm. your house down. Um, but there are no such limits on credit default swaps, and so they would bring in asset classes, credit card debt, student loans, stuff like that, mix them in with mortgages and then over-insure them with credit default swaps. The weakness in that whole system was the people selling the credit default swaps didn't have the reserves to cover them because at the time everybody thought, well, these housing, these mortgages will never fail. Housing prices would always go up. Um, if someone's got a teaser rate mortgage, you know, 888 a month, for the first year and then it goes up to 3000 a month no problem they just sell it at the end of the year uh, make some money and and reset the clock on it but when it, it did start failing um there was no money for these credit default swaps and uh, that was one of the things that suddenly caused everybody to write down the value of these assets and uh so the the guy at the federal reserve i can see his point that um they probably realize yeah, fairness would dictate we should go and bail out the homeowners at the other end of the chain who um, are underwater on this. But our immediate concern is we have a banking system that if they were going to true up their books, they would have to call in 30 or 40% of outstanding loans later today. And if you do that, then um, uh, you have a, a complete collapse of your economic system. So um, that would have been all they could think about at the time. Yeah, just to follow up on a couple of things you said there. Um, so when I looked at the, you know, after the financial crisis and, you know, 2009, 2010, and I was just interviewing various people and just trying to figure out. So, yes, of course, you know, I'm skeptical of the central bank. And I think that's ultimately that, you know, if you had to blame something that that's explains, you know, the boom in consumer or house prices in the mid 2000s. 
and those programs you mentioned, you know, it's funny that when those programs were working, like in 2003, George W. Bush, the U.S. president, he was very proud to say, mm-hmm. oh, yes, you know, we're trying to restore the dream of every American owning their own home. So they were happy to say that our programs are allowing people to get into houses who who the free market wouldn't have allowed to. Right. Then all of a sudden after the crash, it's like, oh, you know, no one should blame our policies. It's not like that had anything to do. It was the greed of the investment banks or whatever. Right. Or it was the deregulation of 1999 or something that caused this. So that was kind of yeah. funny that the, the, what they thought their policies did flipped depending on whether it was, you know, perceived as good or bad. Mm-hmm. But, um, but besides that, there was an intellectual mistake that, you know, these like physics, they had these like physicists coming in at these investment banks and running the models that would price, you know, like you said, these various tranches of issued on mortgage backed securities. So it was the kind of thing like for folks at home, if you just picture like a bucket and so there's little bits that like there's a thousand different mortgages spread around the country and rather than an investor buying just, you know, one mortgage here and one mortgage there, where if that particular homeowner defaults, then oops, your cash flow dries up. It was like they took little bits of mortgages from a thousand different mortgages and put them into this one asset. And then as the payments came in each month, you picture it filling up a bucket. And so if you were an investor, like they would sell slices of that bucket. And so the bottom slice was very considered very safe because it was like, well, gee, 800 out of the 1,000 people would have to fall behind on their mortgage payments for that bottom slice or tranche to not get paid. And so that's why those mortgage-backed securities were rated AAA. And so the intellectual mistake was they they did know that the real estate market was volatile and they knew home prices could collapse because historically they, you know, they had data on that, but they thought real estate was local. So they knew the Miami market could go down 10% and they had a probability for that. And they even, you know, were conservative and, and made the probability bigger in the, in the stress testing than historically it had been, you know, they, oh, there could be a three standard deviation event or whatever. But again, they thought if the Las Vegas market crashes, that should be an independent statistical event from the Phoenix market collapsing or from Miami collapsing. And so the chance of all these major markets going down a lot simultaneously, they thought should happen once every 10,000 years. Cause to them, it was like flipping a coin and having it come up heads 10 times in a row, not, oh, there's some st- systemic cause that's making the coin come up the same across all the coin tosses. Yeah. At the time, um, well, in early 2008, I'd never looked at any of this, but a friend of mine uh, who's a finance prof who specializes in risk management, he, uh, we were at a conference and he just began talking about these these issues. And what he was frustrated about was that, yes, there's people on the risk management side that are purely quantitative, great at number crunching, physics background, all the rest of it, which is important. But looming over all of that were these crazy institutional arrangements, which were creating a lot of bad incentives. And so uh, this friend of mine, um, he was already worried about, um, I don't really care what um, the number crunchers are saying at this point, the system itself is badly set up and it's it's leading to um, a, we're going to have a major credit event happen or a credit crisis um, turned out to, to be the case. Um, now, I think in the aftermath, though, um, because there was this really eight or 10 year period where um, a lot of indicators pointed to, well, the next bad thing is going to happen, the next shoe is going to drop, and it never dropped. And so you get back into this complacency that um, uh, people say, ah, well, money creation isn't inflationary, so let's run deficits. 
and uh, um, the the banking system is stable, um, even though property prices are volatile. So um, we should allow the the shadow banking system some room to start rebuilding these mortgage-backed securities and trading them. Um, I don't know if there were ever any of the proposed reforms to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as far as um, uh, limiting the taxpayer exposure to what they're doing. Um, it was never supposed to be a taxpayer bailout of those enterprises, but so many of those assets were held by foreign governments that the U.S. government, the Treasury, pretty much had to go and say to them, please don't dump these securities. If if need be, the taxpayer will, will make you whole again. Yeah, you, yeah there was a lot of um, moral hazard there, and, and you're right that it the, the status of some of those things in the mid 2000s, you know, they were called government sponsored enterprises or GSEs. And the, yeah, there had not been, depending on which program you're looking at, an explicit guarantee of a backstop by the federal government. But a lot of investors thought if this market gets into trouble, you know, if these mortgages that are you know, backed up by, uh, you know, these, these GSEs, surely the treasury would step in and, and backstop them. And so they, were, were, you know, they were trading at a premium and, and, and there's mm -hmm. lots of statistical analysis. And again, this is fun. It was funny. I don't have the specific numbers at, at my disposal, but I remember you know, Paul Krugman at the time was trying to argue that no, no, Fannie and Freddie had nothing to do with this. And then there were the other economists coming in and just picking apart everything he would say and say, no, that's not, you know, look at the origination started here and then it spread to the broader market and so on. So it's that, yes. And, and like I said, Back when things were going well, all of the interventionists were happy to credit these programs for their avowed purpose. I mean, it's right. like, why have Fannie and Freddie if you think the market allocates mortgages properly? The whole point was to get people into homes who otherwise wouldn't qualify for a mortgage. And so yeah. it's uh, it's kind of hard to then after the fact when clearly too many people were getting into houses or they were getting it at prices that were unsustainable that to say, well, our policies had nothing to do with that. Another mm -hmm. thing too, just a loose end, you, you mentioned, um, Ross, that in 2008, the Fed changed the type of assets it was acquiring and adding to its balance sheet, and they created these maiden lane corporations. Part of that they had to do for legal reasons, for statutory reasons. And I, um, folks, my, my book, Understanding Money Mechanics, that the Mises Institute puts out, I talk about this in one of the chapters, is because the the Fed was not allowed to own. I mean, if you just think about you know the, the possibility of corruption, Ross, they wouldn't want the Federal Reserve to just be able to buy mortgage-backed securities issued by, you know, that's, that's some company that some investment firm's in trouble and mm. the guy at the Fed used to work there and he just, oh yeah, we'll buy that asset off your books. Don't worry about it. To guard against that, they had rules about what the Fed was allowed to buy. And mm. so what the way they got around that was, they yeah, they created these maiden lane LLCs. The Fed lent money to the LLC and then the right. LLC went out and bought the the actual asset. And so the Fed could say, oh, we're allowed to lend freely. We didn't buy those assets. We just lent money to this LLC. We didn't buy some mortgage-backed security. We but like you say, on the Fed's books, it shows up as assets held on the balance sheet. So it is, you know, yeah. sort of this nod and a wink. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, the big picture in terms of why is it important for us to understand what happened is, as you say, because following, you know, the warnings, and I was guilty of this myself, that, uh, you know, I was worried and warning about consumer price inflation in 2009, 2010, and it looked like I was chicken little along with, you know, some other people. And so you're right, like th this fueled the ascendancy of so-called MMT, modern monetary theory types, mm -hmm. to who are arguing, oh, 
you know, these economists have their gold standard era thinking that's not the way the world works anymore. And look at look at all those boatloads of money of QE that came in. If you had listened to these conservative fuddy duddies, we wouldn't have done these programs and we'd be in the Great Depression 2.0 right now. So thank goodness Bernanke, you know, he didn't do enough, they said, but at least, right. you know, he, he pumped in a bunch of money. And it's a good thing we didn't listen to these guys who are saying that was going to cause prices to explode. So that is so now at least we can say and that's kind of like I say a tongue in cheek. Um, there's I documented like guys like uh, Paul Krugman and then Scott Sumner. I don't know if, if he's on your radar up there, Ross, but no. they no. it's it's they favor what's called NGDP targeting. They're called market monitors. So to be clear, these are distinct from the MMT people, mm. but they also you know Krugman, the Keynesian you know, representing the Keynesians, and Sumner representing the the so-called market monetarists also in 2009, 2010, we're running victory laps saying, see, we knew this wasn't going to, this QE wasn't going to cause price inflation, but they didn't see this recent bout of inflation coming. So now it's sort of like, well, everybody's wrong. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like the public, at least we can say, yeah, we were wrong back in 2009 about warning about massive price inflation at that point. But, you know, these other schools of thought who were running victory laps at the time, they missed what just happened. So it's, the world is very complicated at the very least. Yeah, and, and at the time um, when inflation didn't appear after two thousand and eight, and we you know years go by and and it, it's not there, um, I I could see what what you're mentioning that the um, some people uh, taking the victory lap and and others saying oh it's coming any minute now. Um, I looked at that and I thought okay if I take the first group seriously if if they're saying uh, yeah, this is old gold standard era thinking these old fuddy duddies were onto new clever versions of monetary theory where inflation doesn't happen. Then my question would just be, well, then why do we still have income taxes? Why, why do we have sales taxes? If, if we can create money at the central bank and it's not inflationary, then let's go for it. And, um, but when put it in that way, then even the people on the, um, the expansionary side would say, well, you can't actually do that. I mean, the, the, they would sort of hit the wall as far as what economics really allows. And so that was kind of the question for me at the time. And I, when I went through the, the Federal Reserve accounts and I did a bit of writing on it at the time, that's when I saw it. It's not like it takes any deep research to discover, but this excess reserve account was just taking all the the money, and that's why it wasn't circulating. And I'm, I've, uh, I've given reasons why I think the banks were holding on to the money rather than lending it all out. I I don't think I fully understand that story about why it sat there. Um, now, moving to the COVID era, one of the other unusual moves that the Fed made uh, in March 2020 was to they they looked at that excess reserve account and then they decided, you know, reserve requirements don't make any sense anymore. The banks are holding so much in excess reserves um, and they just eliminated reserve requirements altogether, which um, isn't as radical as it sounds. We don't have reserve requirements in Canada. Our, um, the, this traditional idea that you give the you deposit a thousand dollars in the bank and the bank can lend out 900 and has to keep a hundred in in reserve used to be like that. But um, in Canada, the rule is the bank can lend the whole thing out if they want, um, but they have 
targets they have to meet in terms of the size of their loan portfolio to the value of their the capital value of the bank itself. And um, so they're not unlimited in, in uh, how much, how many loans they can create from a, a deposit. And um, you have had in the U.S. standard reserve requirements, uh, which varied by the class of bank. But um, in March 2020, the um, Federal Reserve just eliminated them all. I, I assume, although I haven't confirmed this, that they have in place of that, they put capital requirements in that put other limits on what the banks can do. But the other chart that's there on the Federal Reserve site is the size of deposits in the banking system. And in the winter of 2020, those jumped, which um, happened in Canada as well, because people couldn't spend their money, you know, lockdowns happened. So people just started putting their money in savings accounts. but after that jump, um, the trajectory of the deposits began going up. So it hadn't been, um, it had been pretty flat, but it's began going up. And that means, okay, now the, these excess reserves are beginning to get into the banking system in the form of deposits, in the form of loans. Um, and you can see the corresponding rapid drawdown of excess reserves Interestingly, though, I like that's a number I like to follow, except the bank discontinued that series um, after they decided, well, we don't have reserve requirements, so there's no such thing as excess reserves anymore, so they don't publish that mm-hmm. number. But you can see at the tail end of that series, it's dropping like a stone. And um, uh, deposit the volume of deposits in the banking system uh, was beginning to go up pretty rapidly and continues to. And, and really, that's where the connection is made now to this huge increase in the money supply and now it's getting out into the, uh, the real economy in the form of spending. And this is where the, uh, the challenge for the federal reserve in the end, it's a very simple, uh, mathematically it's very simple politically, economically, it's extremely hard, but mathematically what they have to do is start selling assets. They have to, um, get, take some of these, holdings that they have and start auctioning them off. And in the language of the, um, the newscast, um, people are used to hearing about quantitative easing and tapering. And this is tapering. They have to, um, begin shedding some of these assets. Same with our bank here, the bank of Canada. Um, the numbers are much smaller, but they went, I believe is from, uh, 200 billion to about 500 billion in the monetary base. Uh, since December of last year, they've drawn that down by about 20 billion. Um, the last time I checked. So some moves to sell assets, get start withdrawing cash from circulation. They have a long way to go. And um, the big question is just going to be, um, what are the terms that the market's going to demand to buy those assets back from the bank. And the reason it connects directly to interest rates is if the bank wants to sell a lot of bonds, it would be like if they were holding a whole bunch of old sofas instead of bonds and cut the price on the sofas just to get them out the door. They cut the price on the bonds. That's the same as raising the interest rate that's paid on the bonds. And so right now, the big question of people observing all this is if we're going to start um, getting inflation back down, 
into the target zone, how high do interest rates have to go? And our immediate historical precedent for that from the 80s and 90s um, is, uh, well, you at least have to get positive real interest rates. Like um, right now you got negative real interest rates. So we're in fact in a, a monetary expansion mode that way um, with the nominal interest rate well below the consumer price index. Um, so they at least have to get to, to positive real interest rates. So um, we, we'll see. I mean, it, it does come down to how readily the central bank can sell this stuff that they, they're holding as assets. Um, but that's kind of what we're looking at, um, given the situation that's been created. Okay. Yeah. Let me, um, so yeah, your point's well taken there. Let me push back a little bit, Russ, um, because I, I just want people to know the exact situation. Cause I want to explain too, partly why I up until recently was a little bit, um, unsure of my footing when trying to understand this, you know, what happened in 2008 and nine versus now. And so to be clear, yes, I, I agree with the spirit of what you were saying that when the fed pumped in all of these reserves in the QE program, most of it just piled up as excess reserves in the banking system, but it enough of it did trickle out that you, the, the money held in the hands of the public did go up at least in the beginning. So for just to give mm-hmm. you an example, so in two, and I, I just have these at my fingertips because I just wrote up, wrote up a piece on this. So in uh, two, so if we're looking at what's what's called M one, so for folks at home, that's uh, like actual currency, you know, twenty dollar bills, hundred dollar bills, plus checking account balances. You know, when you go to the, your ATM and you you put your card in, what's my balance? You know, you add up all those numbers that everyone holds, and that's what M one is. Mm-hmm. So that went up during the calendar year two thousand eight. That rose more than twenty percent. Yeah. And to give a frame of reference, it was roughly flat in 2006 and 2007. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking here about U.S. data. So again, yeah. if, the, if that's like a narrow measure of, the, of money that the public holds, it was pretty flat in 2006, 2000, and then a rate rises 20% just in 2008. So looking at that, you know, you, one might have thought, oh, wow, that's, you know, the public has more money. But, um, but then if you look at the next level and this is the last one you got to remember folks, don't worry, this isn't going to, we're not going to quiz you on this after, but it it did help me to kind of see the distinction of between the two episodes of what's called M2, which is, it includes everything M1 does and some other things too, that are less liquid in particular retail money market funds. So that's a part of M2. And if you look at that measure, um, M2 did not grow significantly there was nothing unusual about m2 growth after qe you know in 2009 2010 whereas mm-hmm. it jumped a lot following the coronavirus pandemic right okay so what i'm saying is look at that broader measure when you're trying to understand how come price inflation is hitting like crazy now consumer price inflation but not then if you look at that broader measure in, for example m2 then you do see that oh yeah money did not grow at an unusually high rate following you know the financial crisis, whereas it did this time around. So it kind of makes sense. That's why consumer prices go up. So to understand like, so what was going on following the financial crisis, retail money market funds collapsed about 20%, like about $200 billion. They were about a trillion in the start of 2009. And during the course of the year, um, they, they fell about 200 billion. So intuitively, I think what was happening is after the, the panic in the fall and, you know, remember uh, like certain thing broke the buck and stuff like that. People were like, oh, is my money safe? I don't even know where to put my money. And so they were rushing. And also a policy change was, 
uh, FDIC bumped up how much they would insure checking account balances that going into it, I think it was a hundred thousand and they bumped it up to $250,000 guaranteed per checking account. And so uh, I think there was a rush of wealthy people to move their money out of, you know, money market funds. And that, that happens during recessions that's standard, but it was particularly pronounced following the 2008 crisis. And so, whereas it didn't happen as much following, you know, the 2020 crisis. So yeah, people were panicked, but they were like buying toilet paper. They weren't moving their money, you know, into checking account balances as much. And so I think that's partly like a way to see, yeah, the Fed was pumping in money on its end, but the public was really hoarding money in particular following the financial crisis. And so like, look at the difference between M1 and M2 growth for me, at least kind of helped clarify and, and quantify those different effects. Yeah, they were two very different shocks to the system. Um, the financial crisis in 2008 really was uh, an asset shock in the sense that um, all these entities that thought they had, okay, there's a $100 billion asset on our books and poof, we discovered it's it's only worth a fifth of that. And right. in the case of uh, uh, the 2020 shock, it was we're going to lock everybody's front door and not let them go to work for a few weeks and shut down big sections of the economy. So it was a, a, a supply side shock in mm -hmm. that sense. And um, so in, in Canada, for instance, we, we have like you guys, we have very low savings rate and uh, um, but 2020 the savings rate went through the roof because mm -hmm. people were still getting paychecks, but they weren't spending it on travel and couldn't really spend it on much. So, um, they just put in savings accounts and uh, savings rate went through the roof. The other shock in, in 2020, and I remember at the time thinking, okay, the, the, the chickens are going to come home to roost. We're, we're paying all these people to stay home, paying all these small businesses, medium-sized businesses, shut your doors, but keep paying your workers. So everybody's still eating. They're still heating their homes. They're still buying stuff on Amazon and nobody's working. And, um, yes, the government's mailing checks out so that people are paying their bills, but in the, from a, a real economy sense, this doesn't add up. I mean, the, one of the iron rules of economics that you, you can never violate is costs can be shifted, but they can't be avoided. And so I, I, at the time when I was looking at this, I thought, okay, I, I can see the, the rationale for what they're doing here. But we have to realize these bills are going to come due. And how, do, how are we going to pay for it? That's the big question. And my worry at the time was the easy default here is we pay for it with inflation. And mm -hmm. um, inflation is this horrible form of taxation. It's, it's regressive. It's random. It causes all kinds of real disruptions in the economy. Um, it would have been much more honest for the U.S. government, Canadian government to come out and say, uh, in six months, we're going to start hiking consumption taxes or income taxes, or you know, put surcharges on things. We got to pay all this this money back, and they didn't. And uh, instead, what we're effectively doing is paying for it with inflation. And uh, mm -hmm. um, so it is a uh, um, it's a cruel, it's an unfair form of taxation. And now we're seeing kind of the musical chairs where everybody is going to try to protect the purchasing power of the money they do have because you don't want to be the the one left standing when um, the prices are posted up and you see what your assets are worth and what the cost of things are. 
Sure, sure. Um, and you kind of walked into, I'm glad you you, you went that route with it, because there was one last thing. We'll just, we'll just go a few more minutes here, folks. Um, but one last thing I did want you to emphasize, Ross, because it, it highlights the difference in Keynesian thinking versus like more classical or Austrian or, or even like Chicago school type real analysis is that Ross, when you were saying the um, you know, the program to give people compensation for them staying home from work, you know, to, to support people while they stayed home that a Keynesian analysis, like, Oh, that contributes to inflation, to price inflation because, Oh, you're giving money to people and they go out and spend it. But you kept stressing, well, no, if you're paying people to not go to work, then they're not producing goods and services. And that's going to, other things equal, tend to rise to raise prices. So can you just, again, explain that distinction? Like, how is it that paying people not to work makes prices higher in general? Um, yeah, if if people have a supply-demand diagram in mind, um, paying them not to work means shifting the supply curve back. So um, if the demand curve doesn't move, then you have to move up to, to higher prices. Um, if it, if people for a while, at least if they still have the same purchasing power, if they, if they think they do as they had last year, but there's 30% fewer goods on the shelf, then the prices start going up. Gasoline is a good example. For instance, um, if what drives the price of gasoline up, is that that gas station knows it's got to phone its uh, distributor and get the tanks refilled. And they're price takers. So um, if they know, like if they're charging, if they think gas, they're, they're charging 350 gallon, but then they phone up and find out that the refill is going to be $4 a gallon, they have to put their price up. They can't sell gas at 350 a gallon. That's going to cost $4 to replace. And so, um, the supply shocks sort of way back in the system where um, the quantity is now smaller. There's less quantity, but there's still as much demand for it. Um, that uh, at some point in the system, the response has to be, all right, well, we have to put the price up because we have to, uh, we don't have as much to sell. And from that point on, other people are putting their price up because their input costs are going up. And so this transmission of, of price shocks through the system if it's a supply side event, it's happening because um, people's input prices are going up. So they have to raise their prices in order to, to cover that. Um, I remember uh, when I first, I haven't studied a lot of, of monetary theory, but one of the uh, essential elements of inflation is money illusion. That um, The first thing that happens in an inflation episode is, is people suddenly feel like they're getting paid more for the stuff that they used to sell at previous prices. Um, they can, it's like demand is picked up. And, and so there's this illusion initially that people think their assets are actually worth more and, and they can raise their prices in the stores because um, demand is higher. But that's really just, it's like the tsunami. The first thing that happens, it looks like the water level goes down. So the beach is bigger, but what's actually coming is, is going to be the opposite, which is uh, what we're into now that um, it's not that, the economy is stronger and and uh, demand has gone up. It's that um, there's a, a money, uh, an inflation shock that's coming in. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and that, that dovetails nicely with the Austrian analysis. Um, so folks at home have probably heard this before, but just to reiterate that 
the problem from the Austrian perspective, this is the theory that Ludwig von Mises developed and Friedrich Hayek uh, elaborated on, is that the, the problem with when the banking system floods the market with new money, it's not just inflation, like it's not just rising prices and that screws things up. It's that the specific way that that comes in through the credit markets distorts interest rates and makes businesses feel wealthier, feel like credit's available on easier terms than it really is. And then mm -hmm. that lead, and like you say, Ross, that you know at the beginning during the upswing and the boom, entrepreneurs, people who own factories and whatnot, they feel wealthier. It looks like they're they're confusing it. They think that this is oh my product is really good or valued by the public mm -hmm. when really it's just this general infusion of of money that's not corresponding to you know real changes or fundamental changes. And so then that leads to what's called capital consumption, where they're not mm -hmm. reinvesting enough back in the business because they're not correctly anticipating you know oh how much. Right these tools and machinery that we're using up right now in current operations are going to cost to replenish. And so we're taking too much, what we think is profit and then going and, you know, splurging or buying new uh, jewelry for our wives or something that that's, or husband, you know, if it's a female owned business, uh, mm -hmm. th that's the mistake they make. And so there's, there's real, what's called male investments during the boom. And you can't just flip that on a dime and, and turn it off afterward that yeah. if mistakes, genuine mistakes were made and, and people consume too much because they falsely believe they were richer than they really were during the boom, then there's going to be pain at the bus and there's, you know, there's no policy that can change history. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think that's a good spot to wrap up. Uh, hopefully folks at home, you know, have a better sense now of what happened and why the monetary spigots being opened in 2008 and nine didn't lead to gasoline skyrocketing at the pump the way it has this time around. Uh, my guest has been Ross McKittrick. So Ross, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure. We'll talk again. Okay, then folks, thanks for tuning in and Jeff should be back next week and we'll see you then. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.